fire at the doorstep. We saw the flames coming down, then things start to hit home. The Christie Mountain fire explodes in size. The small glimmer of hope and how COVID complicates evacuation efforts. Fed up and frightened. He had his needle up in the air uh, like he was going to use it to hurt me. Downtown residents ready to move out as disorder turns to outright danger. And a shocking case of animal abuse. I kind of just went into panic mode. How Maya the cat was found and the investigation into who could be so cruel. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Chris is off this week. BC's first major wildfire of the summer has grown again and it's claimed at least one home. The Christie Mountain Fire south of Penticton now covers 1,400 hectares, forcing hundreds of people out of their homes and putting thousands more on evacuation alert. Global's Aaron MacArthur is live in Penticton Forest tonight. Aaron, a bit of a break for fire crews today. Yeah, a, a bit of a break. I mean, it was still 30 degrees here, but much cooler than it's been. And, and right now, much cooler than that. There's no wind to speak of. And as you can see behind me, the fire has settled down a little bit. The smoke is certainly uh, less than it was. The crews are taking advantage of that break by going on the offensive, but all that hard work wasn't enough. There has been significant damage. What's left of someone's home still smoldering Wednesday in the Heritage Hills subdivision between Okanagan Falls and Penticton. The houses on either side completely untouched. Yet the fire was so close, burning right down to people's backyards. Residents had minutes to leave with whatever they could carry. We figured, well, you know, the planes were there, so things will get a little bit better. But then by 5, 6 o'clock, they said, pack up and leave. Well, my back fence is touched, so it came within 100 yards from my house, my friend. Helicopters pounded the hot spots on the Christie Mountain fire. Bombers laid down retardant to help steer the fire away from the interface areas. In the interface areas, fire departments from as far away as Armstrong worked through the night to protect as many structures as possible. Throughout the night, we have had different departments showing up to um, help out and let others leave and have a break, and that will continue to keep happening. The terrain so difficult to access, steep and rocky. Overnight, crews could do little but watch as the fire chewed through a thousand hectares. The ground fire occasionally torching trees. The fire now sitting about 1,400 hectares. As I said to the other gentlemen, I think they did an excellent job protecting the structures. 319 homes still on evacuation order, 3,700 more on alert. Everyone watching and waiting hoping the wind doesn't shift. It's like, not again. <laughs> not again. <laughs> All the, your life in there, your, your memory, memories and everything else. This fire, still a long way away from being contained. Aaron, exhausting work for crews up there. Do we know if they'll be getting any backup now or in the coming days? Yeah, certainly they put more resources on this fire. Last night there were 21 crew members on the ground trying to put some sort of a guard down. That number has swelled to 60 tonight. I can tell you there are far more air tankers in the air. There's a fleet of helicopters still flying until it gets dark, really trying to tackle this fire tonight. I mean, with the weather cooperating as it has been, this is going to be a crucial 24 hours for the Christie Mountain Fire.
Sophie. All right, thanks for that. Aaron MacArthur near Penticton for us. Well, evacuating hundreds and possibly thousands of people from their homes is a daunting task at any time. But the COVID-19 pandemic takes the, log the logistics to an almost impossible level. Grace Key reports on how officials are dealing with the unprecedented crisis. Okanagan hotels are full with tourists staying local because of COVID. So it's been a challenge to find rooms for 319 families who have been evacuated and the 3,600 who may need to leave at a moment's notice. We have ESS working on hotel rooms all the way north to Salmon Arm. We will have the ability to evacuate uh, and put roofs over people. It may be a bit, uh, uh, may not be as close to home as we'd like, especially with COVID-19 protocols. The Edgewater Motel in Penticton is busier than it was last year. Anyone looking for room here will be out of luck. Our property, no, because we get booked up very early in the season. Uh, we've only 12 units, as you can see here. If we did have space, we'd certainly welcome them. Pandemic protocols are in place as evacuees register for support services, but the regional district says it's been going well. There's some challenges because of COVID to ensure that people are still social distancing, um, that they're distancing while they're showing up to check in, and that they maintain that distance while they are in the uh, registration center. Emergency workers say many evacuees have already found somewhere to stay with friends and family, but large facilities are a possible option. We have one of the largest convention centers outside of Vancouver, uh, and it holds hundreds of beds. Uh, there's enough room there so we can space uh, personnel and people uh, apart. If we have to, we'll put it back into service. The Minister of Public Safety says the evacuee registration and assistance application also helps identify people's needs. So it's not an issue of cramming people into an evacuation centre. What it is, and it's particularly been assisted by the development of this ERA application, is to identify the kinds of accommodation that people need in terms of what's their family size like. Neighbouring communities are also making indoor centres available if needed. Grace Key, Global News. All right, meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now. Christy, it has been very hot in that area. We heard Aaron mentioned that it has cooled off a bit. Is that going to continue? Well, just to give you a perspective, Sophie, so when this fire really exploded, we had sunny, hot conditions with temperatures in the high 30s. Today, much better. You can see the conditions there right now, cloudy across the region with temperatures in the low 30s. This is the forecast. We're really talking about conditions in the 20s, so high to mid-20s over the next several days. That's terrific news. Now, what about rainfall? Here's a look at the wave of rain that is going to push in. Not a lot expected for Penticton, maybe a few sprinkles, but we continue with that cloud cover in the cooler conditions. And then on Friday, we're expecting another wave. That wave could bring in a little bit more moisture. At this point, the models are showing maybe two to five millimeters, maybe helpful for the fires, certainly in that area. One thing of concern, though, when we get the moisture, we sometimes get gusty wind, so we'll be watching closely. Yeah, definitely don't need wind in that area, Christy. Thank you. All right, we are continuing to monitor the Christy Mountain fire, and we will go back live to the Okanagan a little bit later in the show. Right now, though, a hearing has resumed into the actions of two VPD officers more than four years ago. Back in March of 2016, the two officers were on a wellness check, which quickly escalated into a brawl, leaving a Vancouver man with serious injuries. Romina Dea reports, and a warning, some of the images in this story are disturbing. Vladimir Chaikun, an engineer, was beaten and bruised from his head to his toes, literally, in a police incident four years ago. He punched me 
he took my hands, another one, they pushed me inside of the residence. When I fall down, I struck uh, to the wall, I lose the consciousness. Vancouver police were called to Tricoon's house in March 2016 after his wife's friend called 911. Complaining is uh, concerned for her friend who lives there. Uh, she called her to say she was having an argument with her husband and that the husband had hit her. VPD constables Neil Logan and Eric Ludeman responded. The officers allege Chaikun refused to let them in. The incident erupting into a battle. I as a daughter, I was there the whole time. I can testify. There was no domestic violence. Chaikun, his wife and son were all arrested and charged with assaulting a police officer. The family says those charges have been dropped. Constable Logan faces another disciplinary hearing for allegedly beating his former girlfriend. Chaikun, now 64, tells us he still can't work. He's in pain, his family scarred. They hope the public hearing will get to the epicenter of the truth and the right decision is made regarding the officers' futures. I believe this is not professional behavior and this kind of action should be uh, not allowed for the police, especially. Romina Dea, Global News. Turning now to the COVID-19 pandemic in BC. The number of people in isolation in this province has more than doubled in a week. Here's a look at today's numbers. We have 68 new cases today for a total now of 4,745. The good news, no new deaths, so that number holds at 198. We have four more people in hospital, bringing that total to 10. Four of them are in the ICU. 3,749 people are considered recovered, leaving us with 798 active cases and 2,452 people in isolation. While we are still days away from getting the detailed back-to-school plans from most school districts, the BC Teachers Federation is now calling on the province to implement smaller class sizes and stricter face mask requirements. Brad McLeod reports. We know the basics. The province expects kids back in school September 10th. Teachers have been given a couple days to plan and students will be partitioned into learning groups. The cohorts are either size 60 or 120 students and teachers. Right now, those within the same group don't have to stay two meters apart. The BC Teachers Federation says that's not good enough. Classroom density needs to be reduced so that physical distancing is possible inside classrooms and within the cohorts. BCTF asking the government to do more, like create options for remote learning. Require all adults and students 10 years and older to wear face masks when physical distancing is not possible. We're learning as we go. The province reiterating how much they've spent on enhanced COVID protocols. Most of the $45 million going towards cleaning. As for those latest demands of the Teachers Federation. We rely very heavily on the scientific advice we get from the PHO. Mandatory masks every minute of the day, which is Ontario's plan, and that's a bit of an outlier. Uh, will present some problems. So far, sticking to its guidelines, but saying individual school districts may choose to modify them to a degree. Surrey just announced a hybrid model offering partial 
online options. It's disturbing that we're at, you know, over 80 every day. But with COVID cases climbing, what happens when someone does get sick at school? Our approach hasn't changed. Hi, it's Mary from Public Health. Contact tracing will remain the go-to. If someone develops symptoms at school, they will be given a non-medical mask and separated. And schools will call public health. Anyone found to be in contact with that individual will be called and must self-isolate. School districts have to submit their back-to-school plan for provincial approval by Friday and must be posted no later than August 26. Brad McLeod, Global News, Victoria. As BC's COVID case numbers continue to surge, a new coronavirus testing site is being opened. The assessment centre will be in the north parking lot of Vancouver Community College at 7th Avenue between Glen and Keith Drives. The centre will be open to walk-in and drive-through patients, and it will operate on a first-come, first-served basis. However, while people seeking a test do not need a referral, staff will not be providing free tests to those who are not experiencing COVID symptoms. New evidence of what many Vancouver residents feel is a deteriorating downtown. Since the pandemic began and the tenth city at Oppenheimer Park was dismantled, there have been more complaints about crime and disorder in downtown neighborhoods. Now a Yale town mother is speaking out about her frightening experience and why it just might force her to move in just over a minute. Fires rage in California wine country and beyond. The state of emergency as thousands are evacuated. Still to come on the news hour. Plus, it's not quite a wall, but U.S. authorities are putting up a fence along the border. The surprising move later on the news hour. Right now, though, more Vancouver residents are coming forward tonight with stories of the deterioration of the city's downtown. As Jordan Armstrong reports, one is a young mother who says a summer stroll through Yaletown with her child turned into a terrifying ordeal. He pulled out the needle from his arm, um, called us a number of cuss words, and began chasing us across the street saying that he was going to kill me. We'll call her Jane. She says she was threatened by this man while pushing her one-year-old daughter in a stroller on a downtown sidewalk just before lunchtime Tuesday. He had his needle up in the air uh, like he was going to use it to hurt me. Jane says a good Samaritan blocked traffic so mom and toddler could flee to the opposite sidewalk where they hid behind a truck. I was absolutely terrified. My heart was in my throat um, and I'm still very, very shaken up about it. She adds she did nothing to provoke the man. She called 911 but did not get an immediate response. Once they deemed that I was not in uh, immediate harm's way um, and back safely in my apartment, they said they would follow up. Um, I did hear back today from VPD. They said that this in the last 24 hours they've heard an insane amount of cases like this. Jane, a longtime downtown resident who now wants out, and she's not alone. It's become a really sad, disappointing, embarrassing place. Baby Kaya is just a month old, and her parents feel downtown is no longer suitable, no longer safe to raise a family. I know affordability is always the reason that we talk about amenities, resources, those sorts of things, but safety? Safety is the thing that we're talking about? That that is Vancouver a safe place to live? Clean it up, city! Clean it up, Videos shot recently near their home show disorder and a fight involving bear spray. We're just begging for some type of support, either um, it be leadership support, policing support. Where's our mayor? Where's our premier? Where's our prime minister? Where are all levels of government? Young families, the future of any city, preparing to pull the plug 
on Vancouver. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. New Westminster police have a story of a good Samaritan that will restore your faith in human nature. Someone found this wallet, described by police as a true George Costanza wallet, near 8th and Carnarvon, and turned it in. And inside, nearly $2,300 cash. So much cash and so many cards, it wouldn't fold. The owner was contacted and happily claimed his wallet, which he said he dropped on the way to deposit the cash. Just ahead, the Whistler man who refused to let a bike thief get the best of him. I was able to find where the person worked, who the person is. How he set up a sting to help reel in the suspects. Plus, a disturbing discovery in a Courtney dumpster sparks an animal cruelty investigation. Lots of emergency crews on scene to a two-car crash here in Pitt Meadows. Old Dudney is blocked between 203rd and Harris and being rerouted. It's not really going to affect you unless you live through this area. It is pretty residential. From help on the road to protecting your home and car, BCAA's local experts are here for your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a two-car crash in Pitt Meadows. A fence is being put up along the Canada-U.S. border through Aldergrove and Abbotsford. The United States Border Patrol is overseeing construction of the cable barrier off the U.S. side of Zero Avenue. Previously, there was only a ditch separating the two countries. The Border Patrol says the barrier is designed to prevent vehicles from either accidentally or purposefully crossing the 49th parallel. That fence is being erected despite long-standing treaties between the U.S. and Canada. Well, I was shocked. I was shocked because under the Treaty of Ghent from, I think it's 1812, and also um, under what's called the International Border Commission, no fences, no structures, no barriers are supposed to be erected on the northern border within 10 feet of uh, the 49th parallel. When a Whistler man's expensive e-bike was stolen last month, he quickly realized he'd be better off trying to track it down himself. So he started sleuthing, and the trail eventually led to a suspect. But as Ted Chernecki reports, the case was stalled until he got a lucky break. It's happy trails once again for a Whistler resident who has his stolen $9,000 electric bike back. When it was stolen a month ago, he took the bolt cutter he found to the RCMP, where they lifted a clear fingerprint, but that's about it. They just took the details and unfortunately said there was not a lot they could do because there was no video footage of the theft. With that, he started his own detective work. He knew whoever had his e-bike would need a proprietary charger, so he started calling bike shops everywhere. The bike shop itself had a video camera that worked, which gave a very clear visual of the person who bought the charger. Now he had a clear image of the suspect. He scoured court documents and identified who he was and a long criminal history. But still, it wasn't enough for the RCMP to act. The information I was given from the RCMP was that they don't have any proof that this suspect has the bike at their house. So I just kind of realized I'm at on my own and if I want to keep digging into this, I'm going to keep, keep having to do it myself. Then an ad appeared online, e-bike for sale. Others in the bike community called on the victim's behalf. A rendezvous was arranged at Park Royal. The owner called West Van Police as he hurried down the Sea to Sky Highway. 
Our officers were able to uh, get there in time. They were able to uh, locate a suspect who was in the vehicle who was quickly arrested without incident and charges of possession of stolen property are going to be recommended and luckily we're able to uh, reunite this bicycle with the owner. He has the highest praise for West Van Police but remains a bit miffed with the RCMP. Whistler has the highest cost per capita of any police force in the province, according to B.C. Solicitor General's 2018 policing report, while its caseload per officer is half that of officers in places like Terrace, Quinnell, or Williams Lake. Ted Chernacki, Global News. RCMP and the SPCA are investigating a horrifying case of apparent animal cruelty in the Comox Valley. A warning, the content is disturbing. I just started shaking and I thought someone was so sick to do that to a little kitty like that. The Okaluk family's cat is back home tonight. Earlier this week, though, two boys were playing when they found the feline in a Courtney dumpster. It was alive, but it was smothered in oil and bound in duct tape. Neighbors helped the boys remove part of the tape before the cat bolted, hiding under a vehicle and running through yards. Eventually, the community came together to bring the cat home. Those who found the feline say the tape was wrapped around its head, neck and eyes. I was shocked. I was just like, who would do this? Why? And what's the reason? We yelled for scissors because the cat had tape all around its neck. So we all walked over and I thought it was dead at first. And then as we got closer, it was still breathing. So I ran and grabbed scissors and my husband was here. And um, I ran back and he started taking the tape off the cat. The cat's owners were eventually able to lure the cat back. They used coconut oil to remove the rest of the duct tape from its neck. So far, it's unclear who may have hurt the cat. Coming up later, we will update the Christie Mountain wildfire situation and just ahead, the state of emergency in California. I could see the red glow and I was hearing explosions. Dozens of fires burn out of control, stretching resources thin. Plus, a giant of journalism gone. The incredible life and legacy of Alan Fotheringham. Here we are over at the Alex Fraser Bridge, which is in pretty good shape right now in both directions. But do keep in mind that during the overnight hours, there's some maintenance that's got you down to single lane traffic in both directions from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. Kermat Collision and Autoglass have been family-run and locally owned since 1973. For unmatched quality repairs and exceptional service, choose Kermac. For location information, visit Kermac.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Tens of thousands are under evacuation orders in California as wildfires burn in the northern and central part of the state. The state of emergency has been declared as more than 30 fires fueled by dry weather and extreme heat continue to burn. This as firefighters have the added challenge of trying to do their job while social distancing due to COVID-19. Overnight in the San Francisco Bay Area, hell on earth. Neighborhoods up in flames. Firefighters losing ground, and for some, no time to escape. Elderly subjects are saying they have fire all around, they can't evacuate. Time to go! This the race to save lives as flames rip through rural neighborhoods, turning country roads into deadly drives. With dozens of structures incinerated, residents forced to flee by the thousands. I could see the red glow, and I was hearing explosions. 
After thousands of lightning strikes over three days, fires are burning from Napa's wine country to the Santa Cruz Mountains. We're evacuating! More than 30 major fires are ravaging the state. Dry brush and high winds fueling the spread. The fires burning unchecked in many neighborhoods are moving faster than crews can. Here, residents say they've called for help, but so far, no one has shown up. Crews battling so many dynamic blazes within close proximity, the raging infernos are now grouped together, so-called complex fires. California is under a state of emergency. These historic fires amid a record heat wave, causing rolling blackouts. All as overworked firefighters try to social distance amid a pandemic. You might as well just get out instead of having to run for your life. With flames sweeping across Vacaville, many in this city of 100,000 don't know when they can return. Tonight, the damage far from done as another dangerous night looms ahead. Across the region, firefighters are simply spread too thin. In neighborhoods like this one, nothing can be done. New documents support the prime minister's claims that his cabinet was acting on recommendations of public servants to work with the WE charity. The documents show that federal public servants recommended the $900 million grant be handed to the organization. That's because it was the only group with the capacity to make it happen in such a short time. However, the documents also show that youth minister Bardish Jagger put WE on Ottawa's radar and political staff in former finance Minister Bill Morneau's office helped keep it there. The controversy over the now-abandoned program has spawned investigations into Trudeau and Morneau. Both have close ties to WE. Taking over as the finance minister of a G7 economy would be a tall order regardless of the circumstances, but taking over in the midst of a global pandemic is likely to involve of challenges. Global's chief political correspondent, David Aiken, has been sizing up the task ahead for Christia Freeland. Christia Freeland begins her historic tenure with economics and politics stacked against her. High unemployment, sky-high deficits, and a credit rating that's already taken a hit. The advice to Freeland, this is no time to be shy. I think the, the most important thing to say is to be bold. Um, this is not a time for hash, half measures. Indeed, both Freeland and the Prime Minister hinted Tuesday that their plan will in fact contain bold measures with a green environmental theme. There is going to be enormous pressure on her, clearly from her colleagues, particularly her boss, to spend a lot, of, a lot more. Now, layer on the tricky politics that comes with a minority government already taking on water over the We Charity scandal, and the pressure on Freeland is even greater. Freeland is almost certain to be judged by how quickly she gets the country back to work. So let's make sure the spending that we're going to be incurring is about building confidence in this economy and getting people back to work, not giving them incentives to stay at home. Women and minorities are disproportionately unemployed, and that means Freeland will have to keep spending to help those groups back to work. And that inevitably means more money for childcare. Now is really the time to deliver because our economic recovery depends on it. So that's, you know, the first step. The next step, though, comes on September 23rd, a throne speech that will have Freeland's roadmap for economic recovery. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa.
B.C. and Canada have lost a giant in journalism with the death of Alan Fotheringham. The former newspaper columnist, author and TV personality has died just a few days before his 88th birthday. His journalism career began at the UBC campus newspaper and his brilliant writing and devastating wit took him to the Vancouver Sun, the Globe and Mail, the National Post and Maclean's Magazine. He was also a popular TV commentator and wrote nine books. Last but not least, he is generally believed to be the first to call B.C. Lotus Land. A decade ago, about a million salmon returned to the Fraser. This year, returns are so low, First Nations leaders are declaring the collapse of Pacific sockeye and calling for more input in managing salmon stocks in the future. Linda Ellsworth reports. There was a time when the idea that salmon would ever not be plentiful was unimaginable. You could almost walk on the salmon. You know, uh, there were so many salmon in the Fraser River. And now to get to this point, uh, it's devastating. But over the last 20 years, the decline of sockeye salmon returning to the Fraser River has been increasingly dismal. From over 25 million sockeye a year to this year's projected all-time low. We're talking about a low return of, a historical low of 283,000. Members of BC's First Nations Summit cite many potential reasons, among them climate change, pathogens and pests from open net salmon farms and mismanagement by the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Many um, decisions are made without First Nations, in particular when it's in regards to some of the commercial fishing, uh, sports and recreation. And uh, and I think, you know, that uh, has been an ongoing problem. DFO says it expected poor returns due to warming water conditions and has banned fishing for sockeye in the Fraser this year as a result. But the First Nations Leadership Council says this isn't a new problem, and so they have a request. Give them more say. What we have to do uh, is uh, have a co-management of the fishery between First Nations and Canada. First Nations, we're at a higher level. We're not a, simply an interest group. We're, a matter of fact, we're decision makers as it states in the United Nations Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People. They believe that change is needed and that their input could turn things around, but that there's no time to waste. We're getting to the point beyond devastation where there, where there will be no more fishery. It's not only about uh, our people, it's about all British Columbians and Canadians. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Cancer patients in Kelowna will soon have access to the interior's first PET CT scanner. BC Cancer is expanding its PET CT program to include Kelowna. In the past, interior cancer patients had to travel to the lower mainland to receive the specialized imaging that can identify abnormal or cancerous cells. Once up and running, the new scanner is expected to deliver more than 2,000 scans per year. The BC Cancer Foundation and Health Ministry will split costs for the $10.5 million dollar project. People, uh, for them, for people who use that service, who get those scans in their home community or on their home island, the Vancouver Island, um, have told me what a difference it made. And Still to come, the tale of the tape. Men lie, women lie, the cameras don't. What body cam footage reveals about the night the Raptors won the NBA championship. And just ahead, the latest on the Christie Mountain wildfire will go live to the Okanagan. 
turning now to breaking developments in our top story, the Christie Mountain wildfire burning near Penticton. It has destroyed one home so far. Flames have been dangerously close to others, and it's prompted both evacuation orders and alerts. Aaron MacArthur joins us live once again from the area with more on the firefight. And what you're seeing at this hour, crews, I, I would think, are still at it, Aaron. Yeah, Sophie, absolutely. There's uh, maybe half a dozen helicopters still bucketing hot spots. Uh, the visibility is still quite good, and judging by the radio chatter, uh, they will stay at it until they, uh, they have objectives today, and they'll stay at it until it gets dark tonight. Yeah, benign conditions tonight, and, and giving the helicopter crews a chance to get in there, but that wasn't the case today. It was a very active fire day, especially early this morning. That one home, as you mentioned, was destroyed. And all day, we were watching candling trees from the west side of the lake over to the east side. Uh, you could see thick smoke billowing out of the fire heading towards Penticton and then the winds would shift and head back down towards Okanagan Falls. This afternoon, visibility got quite a bit better. Air tankers got up in the air and they started laying down retardant. The idea was to sort of flank the fire and, and give the fire a, a different path to take and take it away from the homes. And hopefully that was successful. This next 24-hour period should be crucial for the firefighters on the ground. 60 people here trying to build a guard that will hold. We'll keep an eye on this fire overnight or at least until 11 o'clock tonight. The winds can change in the Okanagan Valley, as you know, and if there's anything to update, we will be here. Sophie. All right, thanks for that, Aaron MacArthur and crew near Penticton. Aaron, thank you. Well, crews can do all the hard work uh, imaginable, Christy, but really the weather plays such a factor in the firefight. It sure does. And Sophie, just this afternoon, uh, Smoky Skies Bulletin was just issued not only for the Okanagan Valley, but the Boundary and the Whistler region as well. Now, the rainfall that we talked about earlier that is set to push in should help the situation of Fairmount. This was from yesterday. Great shot. I love all your photos, so keep sending them in. So yesterday we saw some sunshine, but certainly cloudier in the region today and smoke here. Although Aaron said that the visibility isn't too bad for the fire crews to be able to get on it. Now, this is the rain that's pushing in right now over the south coast and it is expected to push into the interior although just minimal amounts for Penticton area you can see it slides east into that region but then it really fizzles out certainly the south coast will see the rainfall begin overnight and we will see it on and off through the day tomorrow not heavy rain but certainly showers expected with another wave set to push in later tomorrow likely moving into our region through the day on Friday and that should push into the Penticton area a little bit more in terms of rain Rainfall totals, certainly coastal regions will get hit hardest, or especially western sections of Vancouver Island, Sunshine Coast. Uh, but for our region, we could see anywhere from 20 to 30 millimeters, far less for the interior, but that cloud cover and cooler conditions are hoping uh, to make a difference at the very least. There's your forecast for your Thursday. So rainfall in the far north, showers and a risk of thunderstorms through the Caribou Central Interior regions, mostly dry across southern BC, but cloud cover at least, and showers expected for these areas with a risk of thunderstorms for North and West Vancouver Island. So two days of unsettled weather, wet weather as well as cooler conditions. Slight chance of showers in the morning on Saturday, but it looks like we clear out just in time for the weekend. And here's your central windows weather window. Another great shot. This is from Honeymoon Bay. Uh, you can see uh, Nicole shot this from her um, uh, deck. How close that lightning was on Sunday. Terrific shot. Thanks, Nicole, for that. How do people get these shots? I know. I'd be cowering inside I, <laughs> which I you know. should be in well yeah, yeah she looked like she, she was she was safely 
inside-ish. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely close. Not not a not an iPhone photo for sure. Hi, Squire. How are you both? I'm, it, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm looking forward to the game tonight. Yes. There is a game tonight, right? It, there is a game <laughs> okay. tonight. Yes, it's the last game of the day. Canucks and Blues in Edmonton. Uh, and Vancouver, even if they lose, would still have a game six. It wouldn't be over tonight, no matter what happens. But a lot of teams were eliminated today, and John Tortorella, coach of the Blue Jackets, was not happy that his bubble got burst. I'm not going to get into the touchy-feely stuff. I can never imagine him getting into the touchy-feely stuff. Anyway, the Blue Jackets and two other teams are out of the tournament. Also to come, what really happened when push came to shove at last year's Raptors championship game? All right, Squire has just taken care of a shoelace emergency, and he's ready to go. How do they untie themselves when you're not walking? Is it that you don't tie them tightly enough? No, I actually think I have the regulation tightness. Well, I, I just think know. there's something odd they about come, my shoelaces. They come untied all the time. Their own. Okay, um, we're not sure yet what changes, if any, the Canucks will make to their lineup. Uh, word is, inside the bubble, that uh, Tyler Toffoli is still not ready to play. Recently... There has been a lot of debate as to whether Jake Vertanen should stay in the lineup because he's not getting points. One thing about Jake, he'll always cause debate amongst Canuck fans. But it seems like the head coach, Travis Green, has no plans to sit Jake out for game number five. I moved him up and down the lineup last night. I thought he's played well the last two games. I think he's built for this kind of series. Um, it's not just about scoring goals. And again, we're playing a team that defends pretty well. And... Uh, Jake Furtanen's fine. All right, let's uh, show you what happened this afternoon. We'll start with the Bruins and the Hurricanes. Boston needing a win to send Carolina home. Well, they get a goal in the power play from David Krejci. And then just before the end of the second period, Patrice Bergeron from behind the net off Mrazek. That is the winner. It's amazing how many Bruins are still with them who were around in 2011 when they beat the Canucks. And they're still key guys. Coyotes and Avalanche and Kale McCarr, who's up for the uh, Calder Trophy, he will be very close to Quinn Hughes in voting. Not really, I'm not really sure which of those two will win, but I do know this. Colorado is going on to the next round because they were just too much for Arizona. Nazem Kadri a power play goal, then Samuel Gerrard with a power play goal, then Kadri who is so much better now in Colorado than he was in Toronto. You don't see him doing any dumb things in the playoffs anymore. He just scores goals now. That was a breakaway marker. Look at the passing here on the power play by Colorado. Nathan McKinnon with a goal. And Arizona's out. And Colorado, the second seed in the West, is on to the next round. Jonas Corposalo has to do that before the game because during the game, he has to do this. Making saves. But Tampa Bay did get a 2-0 lead. Blake Coleman with that goal there. Columbus fought all the way back and had a two-goal lead at one point. In the third, Oliver Bjorkstrand. But Tampa would tie it and then in overtime. Don't! It's a mistake and it's a winning goal for Braden Point. Oh, and for some reason those teams have NBA basketball logos. Anyway... After the loss, John Tortorella was in no mood to look for any silver linings in Columbus's time 
in the bubble hockey tournament. Hey, John, I know it's hard after a series loss to really compress your thoughts, but what has this whole experience been like being in the bubble, you know, being so close to your players, you know, working with them on a day-to-day basis and just mentally seeing them come back after a pause in times that have been unlike any in, you know, human history? You know what, guys? I'm not going to get into the touchy-feely stuff and the moral victories and all that. You guys be safe. Well, that's a good message. Be safe. The uh, Whitecaps and Freddie Montero appear to be getting close to parting ways. He was left in Vancouver for this road trip, which started last night in Toronto. He has put a picture of himself on social media with a sporting Lisbon jersey, a team he used to play for, and his wife on her social media account put a picture of her holding two Portuguese passports. But the Whitecaps say he's still on the roster, he's still their guy, and that hasn't changed. Game two for the Raptors and the Nets. Look good for the Nets for a while. Jared Allen. But eventually, Toronto would reel them in. Fred Van Vliet between three nets to the net. He had 24 points. OG Ananobi takes a shot to the head. Oh, you want to play that way? Okay, let's play that way. Give the ball to OG. No sleep till Brooklyn. Puts that one down on the next possession after getting hit in the head. And look at Fred Van Vliet with moves. And then to Norman Powell with the dunk. And the Raptors are up 2-0 in the series. Alfonso Davies, Serge Gnabry. Bayern Munich against Lyon. Semi-final action, Champions League. Gnabry had two goals. This off the rebound from Robert Lewandowski's chance. And then Lewandowski would score as well. As you take one more look at this one. And look how high he gets for this header, Lewandowski I'm talking about, and the power on it as well. And Bayern Munich, that team that just fills the net, is going to play Paris Saint-Germain in the final on Sunday. There you go. All right. Thanks, Squire. Let's check in with Ann Drua for a look ahead to Global News at 11. Ann? Thanks, Sophie. We'll have more on that new border fence along the Canada-U.S. border south of Alder Grove. Why some are saying it's a slippery slope. And Vancouver police caught a boat burglar with some help from above last night. The VPD deputy chief sharing this video from a drone which was used to track down the man at Kitts Point. The drone's thermal imaging helped pinpoint the man's location. Those stories plus the latest on the wildfire situation in the South Okanagan. Okanagan coming up tonight at 11 o'clock. Sophie. All right, thanks for that. And up next, more than a year after the Raptors president was accused of roughing up a sheriff's deputy, video that may offer vindication. New video released by lawyers for Toronto Raptors president Masai Ujiri appears to show a sheriff's deputy shoving the executive twice in the moments following the team's 2019 NBA Finals win in Oakland. The Raptors president filing a countersuit in the aftermath of a lawsuit filed by the officer. Global's Mark Carcassol has more on the video and reaction. This is the view of the confrontation from the officer's body camera submitted in the team's countersuit. You can see the Raptors president pulling out his credentials as he makes his way toward the court and Deputy Alan Strickland shoves it. Ujiri looks confused and explains himself. As he tries to make his way by again, credentials out, another shove. Eventually, a shove back. Fans we spoke to at Wednesday's watch party never had any doubt but feel this vindicates the Raptors president from accusations of being the agitator. 
We always believed that Maasai was innocent of what the officer was claiming, and it was just really nice to see it validated through the body cam footage. Will there be a consequences to the security guard for it? I, I hope so, but I doubt it. Men lie, women lie, the cameras don't. Mm -hmm. Other submitted video from arena security cameras show a crowd separating Ujiri and Strickland and Raptors point guard Kyle Lowry pulling Ujiri out, ending the incident on court, but not in court. Deputy Strickland would go on to sue Ujiri, alleging that he suffered a permanent disability when Ujiri allegedly punched him. His suit claims he suffered facial swelling after the confrontation. Team lawyers counter that with this picture of Strickland in the hospital five hours later. He says his injuries prevent him from working. So lawyers present these pictures that they say show him at home using a power saw and carrying boxes. While the sheriff's office initially supported Strickland's version of events, it announced last October that no charges would be laid against Ujiri, and officials did not return requests for comment today. But in a statement released Tuesday night, the Raptors offer Ujiri full backing. Quote, we are mindful this remains before the courts, but we have always maintained that the claims made against Maasai are baseless and entirely without merit. We we believe this video evidence shows exactly that. Masai was not an aggressor, but instead was the recipient of two very violent, unwarranted actions. And disappointing, you know. I think I think um, you know it. It probably ruins a, a night of of um, tremendous celebration for Masai. Fans are sympathetic with the president, hoping he won't let it damper the historic win last summer. A shame on them, right? The men deserved a lot more respect than that. Mark Carcassol, Global News. Well, I don't know if it ruined it. He did well, win a championship. Well, and he had his pass out, too. I know. But the guy was too busy trying to shove him to look at what he was holding in his hand. I guess there was a lot going on. All right, uh, final word on the weather, Christy. Sure. So rainfall pushing in overnight. It won't be a soaker tomorrow, but we'll certainly see it on and off through Thursday and a good part of Friday also. All right. We will be keeping an eye on that fire near Penticton. I get the latest updates tonight on Global News at 11.